0: Ninth Story Studios, giving Story a voice. You're listening to The Private Collector. Hang to your hats. Things are about to get weird. I lay low for the next ten days, keeping my eyes peeled, but not wanting to spark any suspicions in my fellows in the Shiva's Ring camp. I scribbled in my notebook when anybody was around, chewed the fat with the guys, and took a lot of photographs with the little brownie 127 I'd bummed off a buddy of mine in Manhattan before heading up north. For those ten days, I'd kept my ears to the ground, as every night the whole camp stole out into the forest towards the mine. I wasn't sure if they'd actually gone into the mine, which was a crazy notion, or if they had some hidey-hole out there where they got up to whatever it was they were getting up to. I'd also noticed one of the men stealing a glance at me more often than I'd like and wondered what he was up to. If he had me on stakeout or was just too scared to come give me his story for my article. I decided to leave it be and see how long the fellow could hold out before throwing down. It was about three weeks after Bo Shasta's disappearance when I finally heard a knock at my door just after I'd gone back to my bunk after chow. I opened the door and there he was, my bird dog what had been shadowing me. "'Howdy,' he said, taking off his hat and letting the snow into my cabin. He was young, about the same age as Bo, and had a light in his eyes that said he was a smart one. "'Well, come on in,' I said opening the door enough to let him in. I don't want to waste my heat, and I'm not of a mind to go out for more wood tonight. Much obliged, he said, sweeping every corner of the shack with his eyes. Sit down. You want coffee? I've got some on, I said, pouring myself a cup. Sure thing, thanks, he nodded, taking the cup in his hands and warming them after pulling off his heavy gloves. I was thinking maybe you'd want to interview me for your story, he said, with a glance that told me he was counting on it. "'Sure thing. You got a good yarn?' I asked, taking out my notebook and dialing the brownie up to the next shot, hoping this song and dance, and that's just what it was, didn't last long, and the kid would come to the point of his visit. Before he could get a word out, there was an explosion of confused voices and the sound of a bunch of booted feet sloshing hell-bent through the mud and snow outside my door. The kid and I jumped up and raced outside.' where all the men were in a swarm in front of the cookhouse. They were looking up and yelling at somebody. Somebody naked as a jaybird, except for his red long johns on the roof of Cookies Quonset, waving his arms in the air and screaming something I couldn't make out. The door to the bossman's cabin burst open, and the tall man ducked and stepped outside. The big Smith & Wesson he always carried slung low on his belt, now dangling from his shooting arm. Einar took in the scene and, without a word, walked up to the cookhouse, raised the Smith & Wesson, and plugged the guy in the long johns right between the eyes with a single shot. The guy fell off the roof into the snow, and Einar turned without a word and went back toward his shack, while the rest of the men just wandered off like nothing but a rattler'd been killed. A guy goes loco like that this early in the season, when we got no way back to town till spring, There'll only be a danger to the whole camp later. Einer growled, eyeing me real close as he walked past and disappeared back into his shack. Come on, the kid said, grabbing my arm. Let's get on with that interview. You might just find it interesting. I nodded, and we went back to my bunkhouse, where I poured us something with more kick than coffee. And we both tossed back a couple, and then took a third for sipping. What do you make of all that? And what's your damn name, anyway? Name's Carter Hatchinson. Folks call me Hatch, he said, offering his hand for a shake, and I took it. Frank Enfield. So, you ever seen anything like that before around here? That's some kind of backwoods justice or what? How long you been in camp? I pummeled him with questions. Slow down, fella. I've been here just about a month. Pulled in a couple days before you and about a week after Bo. Bo Shasta. That's partly what I wanted to talk to you about, he said getting to the meat of the matter. I figured there was something you wanted to get off your chest. You get a funny read on Bo's clearing out? I asked, not mentioning the watch I'd found in the mud the day they claimed Bo had headed for home, which I took for a damned lie, and also took it to figure into why the librarian had sent me here in the first place. Well, Bo and me, we sort of hit it off, being the youngest guys in camp. Had the same bunkhouse, told each other our stories. He said he'd talk to you, "'the night before he disappeared. "'So you think the story about him heading for home was bunk then?' I said, "'taking a swig of Cookie's fire water that was starting to grow on me, maybe more than I liked. "'Yes, sir, I know it was, and I'll tell you why. "'Not before they said he left. "'Bo told me he was looking forward to the winter here, "'that you was an interesting fellow who'd spice things up a bit, "'and he was hoping to make a few more bucks over the season. "'No way he'd up and clear out just a few hours later, no, sir. "'And I without stopping by to say so long.' Something happened to Bo and it weren't good, Hatch said, tossing back a hefty swallow of his drink. And while he didn't have much in the bunkhouse, he didn't take any of his gear, not even his hat. Anything about that sound right to you? Well, what do you make of it? Like I said, some kind of crazy backwoods justice, or something else. You ever hear about white slavers around here? You think it could be something like that? I said... Offering a clear way to an ordinary, but sinister explanation for things. I suppose it could be, but the thing is… Thing is what? I prodded, and he glanced up at me out of the corner of his eye. Some fellas would think I'm crazy saying this, but… But what? Spit it out, I said, growing impatient and feeling something creep around the edges of the conversation. You ever noticed the guys all head out into the woods after dark? After any work of the day was shut down? Yeah, I have. But they never asked me to join them, so I got no idea what they're up to. You been in the mine yourself much, have you? No, never. They keep saying I'm still in training. Reading books, mostly, about silver. Feels like busy work. Stalling for time, I don't know. They never said a peep to me about what goes on out there at night, though. He said, tossing back the last of his drink. See, thing is, me and Bo used to talk about it. Oh sure, we heard them all heading out there every night, but they never took either of us. I always guessed it was we was too green or something. Figured maybe they had a bunch of local gals, you know, floozies out there who came in after dark, something like that, maybe. But then finally, Bo told me they was going to bring him out there too, show him something real special, see if he wanted in on it or not. Did he go? What did he say? I asked, already knowing the answer. Yes, sir, he went all right went that very night. Thing is, he never came back to the bunkhouse after. The next morning's when they said he'd cleared out before dawn. Some trap had come through and he decided to hitch a ride back to town. Then you don't believe it? Not one damn bit, like I said. Thing is... Yeah, I prodded, feeling the clouds in the room getting ready to break. Thing is, I know they'd done away with him somehow. So I guess there weren't no floozies out there. Nope. I suppose not. Okay, so here it is. I know you're one of them fellas that sees things. You know what I'm getting at. Things that shouldn't be there. Stuff that's dead but was one time alive and other stuff too. What they call haints and such. He blurted out in a choked whisper, waiting for me to show my hand. Go on. Well, thing is, I do too. Have ever since I was a tyke. Used to think I was crazy like everybody said. "'until I learned to keep my mouth shut unless I saw somebody else that had the mark on them like you do. "'There's something going on here, mister. "'Something that lacks all that stuff. "'I could feel it crawling all over me every night. "'Always at night. "'But I gotta know. "'And Bo, it ain't right whatever they done to him. "'So you see, I gotta do something. "'And I could use your help on account of I know you got the beat on this place too. "'So what do you say?' "'He finished.' offering me his hand for a shake. We shook, looking in each other's eyes and getting the lay of the land. That's one way to do it. Touch hands and see what you feel. You can feel all kinds of hands that way, and no two are the like of each other, and nobody can hide the feel of their hand, the touch of their shine, and the current that goes through them. I'll say this too. I ain't never gonna clear out without telling you, no matter what anybody says. Just remember that. They say so, and you come looking. You got a deal, Hatch, I said, watching him fumble with his gloves and feeling my hackles rise. What is it? What else are you not telling me? Like I say, I get a feeling you know something about creepy things most people don't want to talk about, but... Well, what do you know? You been around this stuff a lot? Anybody teach you anything? <laughs> oh, yeah. People taught me some things, all right. A lot of different people. And things, too. Taught me all kind of useful stuff. And you? Just what I picked up on my own and from a few old books I found. Not sure what to make of all of it. So when I landed here and my neck started to prickling, I knew something was wrong, and I wanted to skedaddle and make for parts unknown. But thing is, I couldn't. He hissed through his teeth, glaring at me hard to see what I'd make of what he was saying. You mean something wouldn't let you? Or what exactly? I mean, I couldn't on account I wanted to know what it was. Didn't give two hoots for what happened to me. I just had to know. Had to find out more of what all this stuff is. You hear what I'm saying, fella? He said, slapping his knee with his gloves. I hear what you're saying, and I got it bad too. I'll be straight with you. I came here because of what's going on. I was sent by somebody who's been teaching me things, and he's been sending me places that need to get sorted out. So I'm ready to look into this place real hard. Thing is, you ready to help me? Damn right, mister. You goddamn right, he barked with a big-toothed grin and a sigh of relief. <sighs> what do we do first? Where do we start? Hold your horses there, Buster. First we gotta reconnoiter the scene, share facts and the like. Now, I've been here about a month, laying low and getting my own preliminary look into things. I said, patting my travel kit that had all the goo-ga's and doodads of my trade, tarot cards and shimmy wands and the like. I even had a couple of the Baron's Hex lamps in there, and I was glad of it when I realized I'd be making my way down into some damned mine. Now, you tell me what you get off this place before I say anything. I don't want to muddy the waters or anything by putting ideas into your head." I explained, and was surprised to see the kids stand up. Well then, I guess I better show you what all I found, besides what my guts tell me. It was getting late. Well past sundown this time of year, but not quite time for us to be at the cookhouse for supper. No one was around, and it was easy for us to slip off into the woods, me giving the kid the lead. The dark didn't seem to bother him one bit, and ever since my doings with the librarian and that laboratory of his, well, there wasn't much that held me back in the way of the five senses. Up here, the kid said, breaking into my thoughts. Touch the ground here. Feel the rocks, the twigs all around here, he added, dropping to his haunches and watching while I did the same. Goddamn! I yelped. I'd picked up a rock, and it was hot as a potato fresh off the grill. I felt around, and everything was hot as a firecracker, and I was starting to feel my feet heat up inside my boots. How far does this go? All the way to the mine itself, he said with a little grin. What you make of it? Could be underground hot springs, some other kind of geological activity. You think that's what it is? The kid said, getting to his feet. I don't know yet. There's a feel to the earth when she's grumbling this close to the surface. I've seen it, felt it before. This could be it, could be something else. What else you got? Late at night, noises in the distance. Not quite singing, but like that, voices. After the men have all disappeared. There's something gone wrong here. And you've got to help me figure it out. I'm damn glad of the help. I thought I was going to be on my own on this thing. And I'm not so sure I'm up to it. On my own, that is, out here. Not knowing what these jokers are up to. I figured me and Bo would snoop around. But then he disappeared. Yeah, about Bo. I said, fishing the kid's watch out of my pocket and passing it to Hatch. Ah, oh, jeez, no. That watch was his prized possession. He'd have never left without it. And he'd know in a heartbeat if it ever went missing. Found it in a pool of mud that was a little too red for my liking, outside the cookhouse. I said, gripping his shoulder when I saw him slide deep into himself. Hey, we'll get these jokers. You got my word on that. Go on and keep that watch. He was your friend, and I just met him that one time. Now, you got anything else to show me out here? Could be. If we're lucky, you'll see it. Maybe the weirdest of it all. The mist. There's mist out here in these woods. Comes up whenever there's a sudden change in temperature. No, that ain't it. You'll see what I mean. How come you're trying to throw a reasonable excuse at me for all this stuff? I thought you said it could be things of the unnatural sort. I did. But this is just the way I work. Knock all the reasonable explanations off the table and see what you got left and go from there. The fellow who sent me out here is all the reason I need. But I still gotta do my diagnosis as to the particulars of the thing. See what we're really dealing with. You don't just go in whooping ass and sorting it all out later? Hatch asked, scratching his head, and I let loose a roar of laughter, but had to stop myself, lest anybody hurt us out here. (laughs) Oh, son, I said, wiping a tear from my eye. There's so much out in the world of the unnatural sort, as you call it, and the wrong gun, so to speak, can be your undoing in ways that'll never stop hurting. We gotta know what we're up against before going in a blazing hellfire and damnation. I got my suspicions. I've done some looking into things. Now, where'd you see this mist? Hatch's arm shot out and pointed. Speak of the devil. Now what do you make of that? All I could do was shake my head. A sick carpet of tule fog lay spread out ahead of us between the trees. The stuff that comes in around dusk and lays on the ground no more than knee-high. I've always kind of liked it, made for an atmosphere I found amenable to certain trains of thought. This stuff wasn't like any Thule fog I'd ever seen. As soon as we stepped into it, the stuff broke up and skittered off in hundreds of snake like slithers, like maggots running for cover and disappearing into the ground. I jumped back, seeing no more trace of the stuff anywhere. So you think that's natural, do you? Not likely but I need to see it all and tie it in with what I know on my own. I got enough to go on. Now we better get back before the men start heading back to camp from the mine. Sun's up before long. We headed back to our tents, and I'm sure the kid didn't get any more shut-eye than I did. What I did, though, was get out my shimmy wand, the kind that points in the direction of bad news of the occult variety." Sure enough, it almost ripped itself out of my hands as it got a sharp bead on the direction of the mine, then just lay there in my hand, trembling like it was about to explode. No way that wand would act like that if it was just hot springs down there, or anything else of the earth-raising cane from below. Thing was, though, there was nothing more I could do without a close-up and a hands-on, and that meant I had to get into the mine. Fortunately, it was winter now, and the mine would be empty during the day, with the only activity springing up down there after dark when the camp cleared out. So daytime was when I'd need to do some reconnaissance. Lying there, staring at the ceiling of my bunk, I thought about another thing I'd noticed, but hadn't mentioned to the kid. I'd been here over a month now, and in the last few days there'd been a change in the men that made my hackles rise. You didn't hear those raucous card games and the roaring laughter of men in their cups late into the night anymore. And the cookhouse was a place of silence and foreboding, unlike how things had been when I'd first rolled into Shiva's ring. Cookie said there was a pox in camp. Guys were laid low in their bunks, and I'd best do the same if I knew what was good for me. It seemed more of a threat than a warning, but he'd grinned his broken tooth grin, and I just nodded. I didn't see most of the men and Cookie and Einar were thicker than thieves, always talking low among themselves, then breaking apart if Hatch or I happened by. I didn't like it, but I kept my cards close to my chest for the time being. I could tell the kid was spooked, but it was good for him to be on his guard. The biggest change had come over the boss man himself, Einar Bjornson, and I kept my eye peeled for him wherever I went, not wanting him to come up on my blind side or from behind. It was a spidey thing, always more than a head taller than me, he seemed even taller now, gaunt somehow, like the life of a man working outdoors all his life had been siphoned out of him. Maybe it was because he'd lost weight, a lot of it, but still, he seemed to have gained a few inches in stature where he'd lost the pounds. He was quick and furtive, too, always looking around like he expected something to happen like a man on the run instead of the fellow who ran the joint. He never smiled anymore either, never gave a tip of the hat and a nod as you passed by. He was like a man in the clutches of an opium jag, but I'd never got the sense of that being in camp. And I knew the hooch cookie stewed up in wash tubs out back was rot gut, but it was still just booze. I knew things were speeding up here. I still didn't know exactly what was going on besides something the old gods of land and sea took a mighty exception to, and they were coming to a head. Three more men disappeared from camp one night during a time when I was told repeatedly there was no way off the mountain till first thaw and the return of the logging and supply trucks. I didn't even bother to wonder, and just nodded when I was told they'd cleared out in the middle of the night. There was a whole lot of clearing out in the middle of the night going on, and I just didn't think it had anything to do with hitching a ride into town. Now what sane fellow would believe that? Hatch said everybody had been in camp longer than him, but none of them, except for Einar and Cookie, was old-timers. Then came the cadence vibrating of the ground beneath the camp every night, only at night, so I knew it was nothing to do with the doings of the Earth itself. Not in any normal sense, as you'd think was wholesome anyway. That kept up for a few days until damn near daybreak, about the time the men started wandering back to their tents. A couple of nights after all that started in, Hatch was in my cabin playing cards as more of a ruse than anything, when the door burst open without a knock and Cookie stood there glaring down at us. Preachers in camp, he barked at the kid, stabbing a thumb over his shoulder toward the door. The kid just looked at him. Preacher? He asked, turning to me. Yeah, the preacher. You gotta come meet him. We all gotta go listen to his sermon. He doesn't come through but every so often. And we all gotta go. Hiner's rules. Now come on. He said, turning to leave. Hatch stood up and grabbed his coat and hat, and I did the same. No. Cookie turned and hissed sharply. Not you. Not your turn. Gotta earn your rights to hear the preacher. Kid's been here longer than you. His turn now to get the preacher's blessings. You stay put. Hatch just looked at me and I nodded, hoping he'd know I'd follow close on by as soon as they left. No, how was I letting that kid out of my sight? And just the way the grizzled old cook had mouthed the words, the preacher, made my guts howl. As soon as they'd left, I got into my coat and hat and slipped out into the night, knowing where they were headed. The mine. Even through my heavy boots, I could feel the ground heat and the pounding like the march of the damned, and it shook my whole body with its vile rhythm. The whine of people chanting in time to the drumbeat broke through, and it was way more voices than the men of the camp could cipher for. Whatever was going on down there, I knew it was old time, before humans started messing with things unseen. I also knew it wasn't a thing of nature. Not any nature I was familiar with. Woods and forests. Deserts. The oceans. Alien to us humans as they may sometimes be. Hell, even the snowlands around these parts didn't seem to cotton to what was going on down there in the Earth. And I knew it wasn't old Earth magic firing off neither. Even volcanoes got a nice wholesome purr to them. But old Frank Enfield had two charges here. One was doing the librarian's bidding like always, and I knew if he had me on the case it was something important to the scheme of things in the big picture, see? And the other thing I had a mind to look after was the kid, Hatch. I wasn't letting him slide into perdition on my watch, not if I could help it. Naturally, as a bonus, there was my own damn curiosity and hankering after the truth of the matter, and that wouldn't be quenched until either this thing was finished off, our old Frank Enfield was. I looked up, startled to hear a thousand birds take flight and tear through the trees like they was all of a mind. Then there was dead silence, except for the chanting that every bone in my body screamed out against. Birds don't just fly off in the dead of night without a damn good cause. There was a whole lot of rustling, too, as a stampede flooded out of the trees toward me. I just stood my ground, as there was nothing else I could do Was deer, elk, moose, ground animals of every size, shape, and description, and some cougars, too, and a mess of wolves, all flooded past me together as a tribe. And I supposed in these circumstances they were, and I was of that same tribe right along with them, except I couldn't make off for high ground and safety with them. Then they were gone. I sloshed through the deep slush of mud and melting snow toward the mine, and looked down at the ground in horror. It was alive, oozing and crawling with every sort of worm and bug imaginable. Even snakes were slithering out of their holes, all moving in clear, straight ranks away from the mine, in the same direction as the animals had fled. Everything alive was beating a hasty retreat. I felt I was being watched from the trees behind me. ...and turned to see a couple dozen bears standing up on their hind legs, staring at me. Their noses in the air, twitching as they looked from side to side. Then they dropped to all fours, and bounded away double time. Then I knew I was finally alone with what was waiting for me in the mine, deep down inside old Shiva's ring. Before leaving my shack, I'd of course thought ahead, as I do, and grabbed a few things I figured I'd need. Things a bit more out of the way than a flashlight. Martine had sewed me up a two-bag leather pouch filled with powders and such to be mixed last minute. I had a shimmy wand jammed in my waistband like a 45, and one of the Baron Sandy's hex pots that would give me all the light I needed should the flashlight fail. I like to stick to ordinary gear until the last minute or need demanded. I also had a jar of the Baron's own special mix that I had no plans to dip into unless I absolutely had to, but I never went anywhere on the road without it. I knew it would take out anything that was alive, in the usual sense of the word, and most anything else, too, in the adjacent crossroads in all directions beyond that. But there was a price, and it was only a one-time batch. If I wanted any more, I'd have to go straight to the Baron and plead my case. I like to keep those visits few and far between. There was a price there, too. Always was, and I'd been saving this batch for a good while, and hoped to save it for a good while longer. But I had it if I needed it. Always take what you might need. That's my motto. As I got closer to the mine, the whole picture of things started to crumble. For one thing, the narrow-gauge tracks that ran into the mine to carry out ore and debris were nothing but a wreck. Not just because it was winter and wasn't in use right now, it was all busted up and overgrown. The ore carts were all tossed to the side, rusted out, and smashed up. There was nothing here in the way of gear and equipment that had seen any action in years, probably even decades. There was no mining going on here at Shiva's Ring. When I set foot through the mouth of the mine... Everything slid sideways, and I knew I was smack dab in the middle of the other side of things. It was hot in here, too, hot enough for me to slip out of my fur-lined parka. I shined my flashlight on the walls and did a double-take. The tunnel was a deep ivory-white maw, covered over thick with sigils I didn't recognize, and star designs, and other things I didn't want to wonder about too hard and the whole place looked more like a jujued-up gullet of something big than any mine. I put my hand out and ran it along the wall. It was warm, softer, too, than I'd expected, and was vibrating, like everything else, to the cadence of that chanting. I sidestepped my way into the tunnel, hugging the wall, but careful not to actually touch the thing. I opened up the sack Martine had done up for me to start my line of juju dust and the other stuff, one of Maurice's mixes he did up every year at Mardi Gras, trailing behind me. I looked back every now and then to make sure it was still visible, glistening there like the trail of some rainbow snail, and it gave me a sort of comfort I hadn't realized I was looking for. The tunnel finally veered off sharp to the left, and then down a steep ramp, all of the same densely carved ivory-looking stuff with broad, shallow steps. It was really quite grand by the looks of it, even though I knew for dead certain that this place meant me true and permanent harm. The tunnel widened suddenly onto a mammoth cavern, a thing of such proportions that it could only have been the product of some ancient volcanic heavings in the earth back in the times long before humans came and started dotting the countryside with their modest little hovels, huts, and lean-to shacks. The whole cavern looked like some monstrous cathedral and was covered in the same weird etchings, with the ceiling towering better than a hundred and more feet over my head. It was the back wall of the cavern that really caught my attention, and I looked back to make sure my juju trail was still strong behind me for when the time came, because it couldn't let me down. I killed my flashlight and pulled out the Baron's hex lamp, and watched it burst into a fine, healthy glow that further warmed my resolve. I walked up to the lip of the cavern, not trying to hide my presence anymore, and beheld the splendor of a thing I could not name. The long stone ramp winding downward toward the spectacle was lined with bodies, lots of them, done up in yellow linen wrappings for burial, and covered over with the same renderings, sigils, and drawings as the walls and floor of the tunnel. No wonder the men had been disappearing from camp. Somehow Cookie and Hatch had given me the slip— They were nowhere to be seen, but there'd been nowhere else for them to go after I saw them enter the mouth of the mine. The back wall, from floor to ceiling, so far above my head it seemed lost in the carved stone above, was a marvel I'm hard put to describe. There was a massive throne that seemed to be chiseled out of a block of solid gold that filled the entire back wall, floor to ceiling, but it was a fine yellow gold as was the massive, crowned figure that sat regally on that throne, himself seemingly carved from the same gold. But the thing was, he was alive, at least in some manner of speaking. His arms gripped the sides of his throne, and I could see ropey tendons and veins pulsing, his eyes blue sightless orbs, "'gazing upwards in some kind of fiendish ecstasy "'that made Spidey want to drag me back up the tunnel "'and out into the clean, fresh air. "'Atop the figure's head was a tall, high crown "'with spires like a gothic cathedral, "'and the tallest of them scraped the top of the cavern "'as the massive head moved slightly, "'and the creature breathed and sighed amidst the chanting "'that was now a deafening cacophony. "'But who was chanting?' There was nobody here except for a bunch of wrapped-up mummy-like corpses and the fully naked figure on his golden throne, golden robes thrown back and trailing over the ground. As I got closer still, I could see that the central part of the thing's torso was made up of massive tabernacle organ pipes that bellowed and wheezed and emitted a noxious, gaseous fume that added to the cathedral, albeit a foul one, look of the place. All I could do was stand there and stare. What in bloody hell's holy hall was this place? A soft moaning filled the air now, as the thing on the throne gasped and sighed, his eyes rolling back in his head as he glared upwards, as if to beseech who knows what infernal patronage. Way down in front, small as any ants before the throne, was a movement I'd missed before. Two tiny figures were hard at work. I made my way to the main floor of the cavern. The two figures were Cookie and Einar. There was no sign of Hatch. The base of the creature's throne was a gigantic golden furnace, and Cookie and Einar were tossing the sigil-wrapped bodies into the blazing inferno like logs into a locomotive engine. Each new body consigned to those flames produced a renewed swoon of demoniac, sighing ecstasy out of the golden thing on the throne whose pipes bellowed and hissed a sickly, noxious steam. I broke out into a sweat that stank of piss and fear. There was nothing I could do here besides the one thing Maurice and the Baron had outfitted me to do. All the body cocoon things looked the same. There was no sign of Hatch, and no time to tear through the wrappings of the countless bodies that still lined the tunnel to see if any was the kid. So I took one last look at the golden monstrosity and its pair of unholy monks. Then I took out the jar of the baron's special mix and heaved it full at the throne, where it hit its mark. After that, I ran like shit back to the opening of the mine, after emptying Martine's bag of the rest of its contents into the cavern. When I reached the opening of the mine, I took out a match, said a few words in a dead language, then dropped the flame into the shimmery dust trail that ran all the way back into the cavern. Then I scrambled for cover, fast as I could. Maurice's party mix was mostly high-test dynamite and some fireworks thrown in for color and show. He cooked this up each year for his big Mardi Gras shindig down in the bayou. The Baron's special mix, which I had anointed that infernal throne with, was designed to suck anything in range into his own maw of death and destruction at the last and final crossroads there is, and would, after everything else, blow the lid off the whole mountain. This was the best I could do under the circumstances, and it had to be good enough. From a distance, I heard the place blow, and saw the jaws and talons of blue fire shoot up a thousand feet and more into the heavens, past the clouds and looking to make the stars themselves quake in shame. A roaring, thunderous growl opened up in the bowels of the mountain, followed by a scream, partly human, mostly not. And then it was over, a thing done and closed off. All there was after that was a deep sigh of relief and peace from the trees and the air all around me, and something that felt like a thank you. Whatever else had happened here, this was the end of Shiva's ring mine. I went to my cabin and collapsed for two days undreamed of Hatch, hoping he'd found something in all this that was interesting enough to die for. I hadn't seen his body, and there'd been no time, really, for Cookie to truss him up like the others. I just didn't know. But not knowing made me sad for the kid. The morning of the third day, after all the big doings, I grabbed my gear and set out on foot through the mud and slush towards a logging camp I knew was about ten miles or so south. From there I got a ride into what must have passed for a town in these parts. There was a telegram waiting for me. It was from the librarian, and I smiled. It was to be expected. Of course that sly old wizard would know where I was. I unfolded the piece of paper and read. The smile quickly melting off my lips. So, Mr. Enfield, you have tangled with the king in yellow and are none the worse for the wear. Don't pat yourself on the back just yet, my boy. The king is not to be gotten rid of quite so easily. He has only, for a time, slowed down a bit. Slithered off to his dreaming place among the stars, no doubt. Have no fear. He shall regroup and recoup and install himself anew in less temperate climes. Only now, he knows who you are. (laughs) Hope all is well, your librarian.